morning. It's good to be with you. My name is Garrison, and I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas State, and we're very glad to be together this morning with you. If you want to take your Bibles and open to Amos chapter 9, we are slowly but surely making our way through Amos, and uh, we are actually in the second, Lord willing, of the last sermons um, of the book of Amos, and next week, Lord willing, we will be uh, finishing up uh, in this series. That's our kind of practice here at Veritas is to uh, find a book of the Bible and um, slowly work our way through that. Uh, that's not the only way we preach um, uh, in sermon series here, but that's the kind of main way that we tend to, to preach is to just work our way through books of the Bible. And again, that's brought us to uh, Amos chapter 9, which there's not really much better way to put it other than just to say that there are some things that are offensive in Amos and in Amos chapter 9. Um, I'm actually going to be uh, leaving right after I get done preaching to go serve another church and, and preach there this morning as well. So um, if you're offended at all by what I say, you can talk to Pastor Dan afterward. <laughs> um, Amos chapter 9. So let's take a moment to pray before we dig in together. All right, Father, we give you thanks for your kindness and your grace. We give you thanks for uh, your, your, your goodness to us in Christ Jesus. And we give you thanks for the revelation of your word that you've shown us who you are and what you've done for us in Christ and what you plan to do in human history and that you've shown us the reality of your judgment so that we might fear you and turn to Christ. And we pray that as we look at Amos chapter 9, verses 1 through 10 this morning, that you would open our eyes to the reality that you are just, that you are holy, and that we are not. That we need grace, that we need Christ, that we need his cross. And that everyone we know and everyone we come in contact with and everyone we meet needs the same. Would you help us to be so compelled and transformed by that reality that we would completely cast ourselves on Christ for your forgiveness and that we would tell the world about what Christ has done. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, Peter Hitchens is uh, Christopher Hitchens' brother, and uh, he wrote a book entitled The Road to God, How Atheism Led Me to Faith. And in it, he recounts his, his kind of particular path to faith in Christ. And in, in one place, he describes this fascinating encounter with a, a painting, a painting which depicts the final judgment. And, and he, he discusses at length um, some of the some elements of the, the spiritual impact that this painting had in his own conversion. Listen to what he writes. He says, what I can recall very sharply indeed is a visit to the Hotel Dieu in Bonn, a town my girlfriend and I had gone to mainly in search of the fine food and wines of Burgundy. But we were educated travelers and strayed, guidebook in hand, to the ancient hospital. And there, Worth the journey, according to the Green Michelin Guide, was Roger van der Weyden's 15th century polyptic, The Last Judgment. And then you can put the painting up there. This is the painting, The Last Judgment. 
He goes on to say, I scoffed. Another religious painting, couldn't these people think of anything else to depict? Still scoffing, I peered at the naked figures fleeing toward the pit of hell out of my usual faintly morbid interest in the alleged terrors of damnation. But this time I gaped, my mouth actually hanging open. These people did not appear remote or from the ancient past. They were my own generation. Because they were naked, they were not imprisoned in their own age by time-bound fashions. On the contrary, their hair, and in an odd way, the set of their faces were entirely in the style of my own time. They were me and the people I knew. One of them, and I had always wondered how the painter thought of it, is actually vomiting with shock and fear at the sound of the last trump. I did not have a religious experience. Nothing mystical or inexplicable took place. No trance, no swoon, no vision, no voices, no blaze of light. But I had a a sudden strong sense of religion being a thing of the present day, not imprisoned under thick layers of time. A large catalog of my misdeeds, ranging from the embarrassing to the appalling, replayed themselves rapidly in my head. I had absolutely no doubt that I was among the damned, if there were any damned. And what if there were? How did I know there were not? I did not know. I could not know. Van der Weyden was still earning his fee nearly 500 years after his death. I had simply no idea that an adult could be frightened in broad daylight and after a good lunch by such things. As we come to Amos chapter 9 this morning, we come to a Similarly, a fear-inducing depiction of judgment, divine judgment. As you're very well aware, if you've been with us for any amount of time, the subject of, of judgment has been a major theme in Amos' prophecy. But as we come to the last chapter here, we see the sort of final pronouncement from Amos. He's inferring that there's, there's no opportunity for escape here. There's no more pleas for repentance here. The Lord is going to destroy the kingdom, slay many, and send his remaining people into exile. And yet, as we read this passage this morning, my prayer is that we would, we would encounter this text similar to how Hitchens encountered this, this painting. I, I don't want us to look at this text as a mere historical piece directed toward 8th century Israel alone. I don't want us to look at this text as something relevant only to those forgotten in the archives of human history. Like Hitchens saw in the painting, I want us to see our own generation. I want us to see ourselves and the people we know. I want us to see that God's judgment is not a thing of the distant past, something he used to do, but he's much nicer now. Not as something people used to believe in, but we're all a bit more enlightened now. I want us to take God at his word that he is a God who will one day judge the living and the dead, and that we and people we know will stand before him on that day. I want us to take God at his word. If you'd like to stand with me, For the reading of God's holy and precious word, Amos chapter 9, verses 1 to 10, let's listen with reverence and joy to the word of our God. From the pen of Amos, inspired by the Holy Spirit, 
I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them, I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there my hand will take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts and all who dwell in it mourn and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds up his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vaults upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. Behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations, as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Well, the main point of our text is fairly plain to see, and here the main idea is that the Lord's judgment is inescapable. In verses 1 to 4, we see the Lord's inescapable judgment. In verses 5 to 6, we see the Lord's infinite sovereignty. In verses 7 to 8, we see the Lord's impartial dealings. And in verses 9 to 10, we see the Lord's intentional sifting. First, we see the Lord's inescapable judgment in verses 1 to 4. And this is the final vision of, of Amos. And in it, verse 1, he says that he sees the Lord standing beside the altar. An altar, of course, is, is a place of of sacrifice, the place where God's people would uh, offer their sacrifices intending to make atonement for their guilt. But this altar is probably the altar of the sanctuary in Bethel, known for its corrupted and hypocritical religion. And so the Lord speaks of destroying the sanctuary in Bethel. But interestingly, Bethel is meant to serve as a kind of metaphor here for Israel, the nation of Israel as a whole. So he says, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. The capitals, of course, in a sanctuary are the the pillars that provide structural support for the building. And here they serve as a a metaphor for the prominent and elite in Israel, the so-called pillars of the nation, as we saw earlier in Amos. The Lord commands that they be cast down, And not only that, it's not just the prominent elite who will be destroyed, but all the people. He says for the capitals to be struck until the thresholds shake and the entire structure be brought down on the heads of all the people in a Samson-like fashion. 
Then he goes on to say that, that those who even survive this destruction will be killed by the, Lord, by the sword. The, uh, the Lord says, I will kill them with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. There's no escaping this. And then in verses 2 to 4, he goes on to reiterate this, this point of inescapable judgment by saying that there's nowhere that Israel will be able to run, nowhere that they'll be able to hide. He says, if they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And he, he's employing a, a literary tool called mirrorism here. Uh, mirrorism is where an author will use kind of two contrasting ideas or places as a way of encompassing the whole. So he, Sheol, Hades, he says it's the lowest possible place in the supernatural spiritual realm, and heaven is the highest possible place in the, in the spiritual realm. And no matter if someone hides in Hades or in heaven or anywhere in between, Amos is saying, they cannot hide from this sovereign judge. And then Amos, he goes on to, to speak the same way, but the, the material and natural realm as well. In verse 3, he says, if they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, that's one of the tallest mountains in Israel, Yet even there, from there, I will search them out and take them, he says. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. But then even if they do escape from that judgment, the Lord goes on to say in verse 4, if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them, and I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. You can see here, the people are trying to run and hide and escape from the white hot wrath of God against them for their sin, but there's no escape. There's no hiding from his ever penetrating gaze. And this, this reminds me of a, a, of a passage of scripture we find in the book of Revelation, Revelation 6. In Revelation 6, the apostle John, he's, he's writing and describing the, the terrifying judgment to come. And this, this judgment he describes will not be located on a particular plot of land in the Middle East. This judgment he describes is a global judgment which the whole of the earth will encounter. Every man, woman, and child, every nation of the earth will encounter and witness. And the judgments that God makes then will be final. And at that time, there will be many who try to run and hide themselves from the wrath of God. Revelation 6.15 says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So again, I emphasize to you, it's not just 8th century Israel and those depicted in Van der Weyden's painting who will meet with the fiery judgment of God. It's you and me and our generation and those that we know. And what's more is that there's no escaping it. There's no escaping the wrath of God, if he is against you, there's not height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can keep you safe from God's judgment if he's intent to judge. God's word declares it. Our consciences confirm it. God will judge, and there's no one who is exempt from his judgment. And to support this point, Amos goes on in verses 5 to 6 to preach about the Lord's infinite sovereignty. The reason the Lord's judgment is inescapable, the reason there's nowhere to run or hide from him is because his sovereignty is absolute. 
His imperial authority knows no bounds. There's no place over which he does not have dominion. And so look with me next at the Lord's infinite sovereignty. Here in verses 5 to 6, Amos employs a, a kind of hymn whose lyrics describe the infinite sovereignty of the Lord. It very well actually may have been a hymn that Israel sang in the sanctuary in Bethel at the time, a hymn with which the Israelites used to, to comfort themselves with the knowledge that their God is the almighty sovereign of the universe. But here this news comes not with comfort, but with terror. It starts by calling the Lord the, the Lord of hosts. And we've seen that phrase a lot in Amos. I don't think we've actually uh, talked about what it means uh, Literally, what it means to call the Lord the Lord of hosts is to say that he's the Lord of armies. It's literally what that means. It intends to communicate that the Lord is the almighty warrior king, and when he comes in judgment, because he's the almighty warrior king, he's able to create earth-shattering disturbances. Okay, he's the one who's sovereign over all things spiritual and material, all things natural and supernatural. He is, the, he is the general, the Lord of the angelic armies of heaven. He controls the actions and movements of earthly armies. The, all of the elements, all the cycles of nature are under his sovereign control. He is the one who controls earthquakes. That's what Amos speaks of here when he talks about the Lord touching the earth and it melting. He's the one who floods Egypt with the rising of the Nile and then brings it back down again, as Pastor Dan spoke of last week. He's the one who calls for the waters of the sea to go up into the clouds and then be poured back down again on the surface of the earth. How? Because, verse 6, he is the one who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vaults upon the earth. In other words, heaven and earth are his royal palace, and he is the one who rules over it all as his own domain. He is the infinitely sovereign God. And now it's very important that we, we grab hold of this because there's probably no one more detested doctrine in the Christian faith than the doctrine of divine judgment. Outside of the church and then even sometimes in the church, this doctrine might be thought of as, as mean, as outdated, as unfair, as downright reprehensible. And so many people reject it. And here's the thing. We could go through and answer, you know, many of the, the kinds of issues that people have with the doctrine of divine judgment, discuss why those are misguided. We've done it before, and we're going to do it again. Divine judgment, though, is not mean or unfair. It's entirely fair. It's entirely just because God is the definition of justice. It's not reprehensible. It's biblical. It's actually very good news. We've covered all this and more in sermons in the past. We'll do it in the future. But, but here's the thing. No matter what defenses and explanations and arguments we give for the doctrine of divine judgment, the reality is the doctrine of divine judgment will never sit right with you until you accept the fact that God is God and you are not. The doctrine of divine judgment will never sit right with you until you grasp something of the godness of God. That he is the creator and sustainer of you and all people and everything. That he is the one true and only sovereign of the universe. And that he, therefore, is the rightful judge of creation. 
No defense of divine judgment, no explanation for why it's necessary or good will be accepted by us or by anyone until we submit to the reality that God is God and we are not. That this is his world and we're just living in it. That he is the potter and we're the clay. That he's the author and we're merely playing parts in his story. But then Amos moves on again to, to, to provide another kind of supporting argument for why God's judgment is inescapable. And here he, he declares that the sovereign Lord of the universe, the Lord, is an impartial judge. He doesn't play favorites. There's no particular people group exempt from his judgment. He judges all peoples, and he does so impartially. Look with me next at the Lord's impartial judgment in verses 7 to 8. As we've already seen in, in the book of Amos, the Israelites in Amos' day thought themselves immune from divine judgment. After all, they were God's special and elect People, they were in a privileged position, which gave them immunity from in heaven's courts. So they thought, we can do whatever the heck we want. Let's party. And so the Lord exposes their arrogance by asking a rhetorical question here. He says, are you not like the Cushites to me? O people of Israel, declares the Lord. The Cushites, they were a, a people group in, in, uh, in Africa, actually in Ethiopia. And in asking this important question, the implied answer is No. No, the Israelites are not any different than the Cushites to the Lord. And he goes on to also compare them to the Philistines and the Syrians. He says, did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphtar and the Syrians from Kerr? You see, Israel thought themselves special because of the, their exodus from Egypt. But the Lord says, I, I control all the destinies and migrations of all peoples. All peoples are, ever, are under my ever-watching eye and guiding hand. On the flip side, because of that, all peoples are subject to his divine judgment. No exemptions. Not even for Israel. The Lord is impartial in his dealings with all nations and all peoples of the earth. There's no one exempt from his judgment. Now, this is important. We, this is an important point we must deal with. Because so often we're, we're tempted to think that there's some exemption out there, that there's some sort of special exemption out there, some way to escape from divine judgment on the basis of, of some exemption. And so, some think that there's a religious exemption from divine judgment. That if you come to practice some religion or another authentically, that you'll be exempt from God's judgment. But as long as a person practice their religion, no matter what it is, with deep sincerity of heart, that God accepts it, and that that person is saved from the wrath to come. C.S. Lewis believes something like this, actually. One of my heroes. Let me tell you, if you search the scriptures, there's no religious exemption from divine judgment. The Israelites in Amos, they show us this. We have no reason to think that their religious observances were insincere. We have no reason to think that their offerings or sacrifices were, were inauthentic. But my friends, it is entirely possible to be sincerely and authentically wrong. A person may have cancer but sincerely mistake their symptoms to be the flu, and whether they sincerely believe themselves to have the flu matters not. If they treat their condition as if it was only the flu, all the while it's cancer, it doesn't matter if they're sincere or not in their belief. Similarly, a, a person may sincerely believe in Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism, but sincerity is not the standard. God's word is the standard. And so even those who practice their religion with sincerity and authenticity stand condemned before the righteous judge. And this goes for Christians as well. 
we very well may sincerely cling to religious, Christian religious practices and professions, all the while never actually embracing the truth of the gospel. But be deeply mistaken. There's no religious exemption. A person may sincerely think themselves to be a Christian and even sincerely observe religious Christian religious practices, but be deeply mistaken. There's no religious exemption, not for anyone. The Lord is an impartial judge. There's also no national exemption. The Lord's declaration of his impartial dealings with the Cushites, the Philistines, the Syrians shows he doesn't play favorites according to national or ethnic identity. And this is, this is perhaps an important thing for Americans to hear. It's not uncommon for Americans and even Christian Americans to adhere to an idea known as uh, American exceptionalism. American exceptionalism is the idea that America has a special place in the divine plan and therefore has this privileged status among all nations. And sometimes you will even believe that it causes it, it, its reason for America to be thought of as superior to all nations. But again, the Lord controls the destinies and migrations and formations of all peoples. All peoples are under his ever-watching eye and all-guiding hand. America is not special. It's not superior to any other nation. America and Americans are not exempt from divine judgment, both temporally or in the final judgment to come. There's no national exemption. Nor is there an ignorance exemption. An ignorance exemption is common belief amongst Christians sometimes that haven't actually searched what the Bible says about the subject, that those who have never heard about Christ are exempt from divine judgment. But those who have, who have never heard about Christianity can't become Christians, and so it wouldn't be fair for them to be judged based on what they didn't know about. That's just simply not what the Bible teaches. You see, we're not condemned merely on the basis of rejecting Christ after we've heard of him. We are condemned before we ever hear of Christ because we know God, we know his holy and righteous law because it's written on our hearts, and we've rejected him. This is actually largely the point Paul is making in the first several chapters of the book of Romans. There in Romans 1, 19 to 21, Paul writes about people who are ignorant about the coming of Christ and says that what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. In other words, all, all humanity, all peoples of the earth apart from Christ, they know just enough about God and his standards to be held accountable for their sin and to stand condemned before him. So Paul says in Romans 2, 11 through 12, God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Just as there's no religious exemption, no national exemption, there's no ignorance exemption as well, because God is impartial in his dealings. He is an impartial judge. And he shows Israel his impartiality and his judgment against them. 
Because Israel rejected the Lord and lived like every other nation of the earth. Verse 8, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. Of course, here in our first time in our text, we see something of a glimmer of hope, don't we? It's been all about death and destruction so far. But here we, we see there's some hope. There's a glimmer of light. The sinful kingdom will be destroyed in Israel, yes. But the Lord is not going to utterly destroy the house of Jacob. Look with me, lastly, at the Lord's intentional sifting. The Lord says through Amos, For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. The Lord's judgment is always discerning. The Lord will intentionally punish the unfaithful in Israel while preserving the faithful. Those arrogant sinners who say disaster shall not overtake us will be overtaken by disaster. But the Lord would preserve a remnant of Israelites through whom he would carry on his mission in the world. And the illustration he uses to describe this is that of a sieve. A sieve, of course, is like a, like a strainer. It can be made of metal or plastic or uh, wood or dried palm leaves. Uh, they, they have this kind of mesh material or holes at the bottom, and you put wheat and, and uh, things in it, and, and you kind of shake it. You sift it. You shake it, and then the wheat falls out of the bottom, and the, the, the pebbles are kind of caught in the sieve. That's what a farmer would do to, to kind of sift its, its wheat, I guess, their wheat. And uh, the idea being that the wheat would fall through, the pebbles and whatnot would remain in the sieve and then be discarded. And this is what the Lord says he's going to do with Israel in judgment. He's going to preserve the wheat and the pebbles that remain, the sinners, will be caught in the sieve and destroyed. This was always the intention when the Lord would pursue his people in judgment. It would be to purify them, to sift them, to remove the impurities, removing the unrighteous and keeping the righteous. Here's the thing, that's still a problem, isn't it? Because if you were to travel outside the book of Amos, you were to look at the other prophets, you were to look at Ezra and Nehemiah like we did a few years ago, look at early parts of the New Testament, You'll find something concerning. There's no sinless Israelites. There's no righteous people left. Even among the remnant, the remnant left after the Assyrian invasion, after Israel and the Babylonian invasion in Judah, they're still impure. They're still unrighteous. The remnant is still bearing the characteristics of the sinful kingdom. And so even after the judgment and after they go into exile, they're not brought back from exile because they still continued in sin and unrighteousness. And the Lord continues to intentionally sift his people and sift and sift and sift and sift and the righteous remnant becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. And you know what we find when we turn to the New Testament? We find that the righteous remnant of Israel actually comes down to just one man. And his name is Jesus. Everyone else, 
are all sinners among God's people. Everyone else belongs to that sinful kingdom. Everyone else, they're all pebbles caught in the sieve, impure, unrighteous, sinful. He alone is the grain of wheat that falls through the sieve. He alone is worthy of belonging to God's eternal kingdom and living in the promised land. And he alone does not deserve God's righteous judgment. He alone is able to escape God's eternal judgment. He alone is worthy because he himself is the God of Israel come to us in human flesh. But here's the really amazing thing. The God of Israel come to us in human flesh who is standing beside that altar in Amos 9 climbs onto it himself to become the sacrifice, the atonement that was truly needed for God's people to be reconciled and forgiven and made new. On behalf of his sinful people, he actually took upon himself the judgment they deserve. My friends, that's what the cross is. It's the the cross of Calvary is the ultimate altar on which Jesus dies in the place of sinful men and women. The cross is Christ taking upon himself the white-hot wrath of God that you and I and all peoples of the earth deserve in our place. Israel deserved judgment. The Cushites deserve judgment. The Syrians deserve judgment. The Philistines, Americans deserve judgment. You and I deserve God's eternal judgment. And so does everyone else in all of creation. We've all been under the ever-present and penetrating gaze of God. And under his gaze, we've all been declared what we are, sinners, unrighteous, condemned, murderers, sexually immoral, racist, bigots, liars, thieves, coveters, idolaters, and more. And yet on the cross, Jesus became sin. And he stood condemned as the murderer, as the sexually immoral, as the racist, the sexist, the bigot, the idolater, the thief, the liar, the coveter, and more. He became that so that you and I might be declared righteous in God's sight. You see, God's judgment is still inescapable because sin must be punished, it must be judged, but in his mercy, Christ stepped in to take the inescapable punishment that we deserve. So now, you have a choice to make. Either Christ will have bore your sin on the cross, or you will in the final judgment. And that's not all. On the third day, he rose from the dead as the public declaration of God that the final judgment is still on its way. As Paul says in Acts 17, 31, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That judgment day is still coming. And those who trust in Christ will be given full amnesty on that day. But those who don't will bear the white hot wrath of God, which Christ endured for us on Calvary. And they will be cast into the hell of eternal conscious torment. And so here's my final exhortation to you before we conclude. Trust in Christ and tell the world. Trust in Christ and tell the world, trust in Christ. He bore the wrath for all who put their trust and faith in him. 
And God has invested in him all the power and authority to judge on the last day. And he has promised that if you trust in Christ, you're fully forgiven. You're fully justified. You're fully freed from the guilt you've incurred. You're free from the punishment you deserve. And while there's no height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation that can separate you from the righteous judgment of God in your sin... If you trust in Christ, there's now no height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation that can separate you from the grace and love of God in Christ Jesus. He intends to do you good forever and ever and ever. Trust in Christ, and that promise is yours. Also, tell the world. The judgment to come will be a global reality in which all the peoples and nations of the earth will come to face the reality of God, the impartial and sovereign judge. There's no religious exemption. There's no national or ethnic exemption. There's no ignorance exemption. All peoples who are not trusting in Christ will be judged and condemned. They need to hear this news. They need to hear about the Christ and what he's done for ruined sinners. What he's accomplished on the cross. Do you believe that? Do you share that message with your unbelieving friends and families? Do you pray for the conversion of your own children? Are you at all concerned about the unreached people groups of the earth who have yet to hear the gospel and who are headed for judgment without Christ? Trust in him and tell the world because the judgment of the Lord is inescapable. Either Christ bore your sin on the cross or you will bear it on the last day. That's true for our generation. That's true for you and for me and for the people we know. So trust in Christ and tell the world. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for the transforming work of the Holy Spirit to be applied to our hearts through this word. Let the the seed of the word not fall on our hearts like the, the seed that fell on the thorny soil or the rocky soil or the beaten down path. Let our hearts be like that fresh, fertile soil prepared by your spirit to receive the truth of the word and to produce fruit 30, 60, 100 fold so that you might get the glory and so that we and your people across the earth might get the good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.